Hello, I'm Earl Fontanelle, and you're listening to the Schwepp, the secret history of Western esotericism podcast online at schwepp.net, episode 136. The Greater Kinds, Soul, and Cosmos. Introducing Yamlukus's Philosophy, Part 2. In our second episode on Yamlukus's universe, we're moving down the scale of being toward the cosmos, the geocentric sphere containing everything we can see and touch and hear and so forth in our state as embodied humans. But before we get to the cosmos proper, or even to soul, there are an awful lot of creatures to be encountered. These are the Cretona Gene, the greater kinds. As we mentioned in the last episode, while Iamblichus does agree with Plotinus and Porphyry, and every other Platonist, that a divine noose and a universal soul are two important constituents of reality, he thinks it's a lot more complex than that, and he inserts between the noose and soul a complex hierarchy of divine entities. Namely, archangels, angels, several types of daimones, heroes, and two levels of archon. In one way of speaking about it, that we find in Yamlukus, the level or world or realm of soul is ontologically below all of this. But actually, some at least of these entities have souls, and indeed soul vehicles, and indeed even bodies. So that's crazy, but we'll come back to it. We have to differentiate sharply between the kinds of souls we humans have and the other genera of souls. For example, the souls of gods, of planets, of heroes, daimones, angels, and so on. I'm not aware of any surviving evidence in Yamlukus stating that every type of post-noetic has a soul, but going with his generally literal reading of Plato, he seems to have followed the Phaedrus myth, where the gods explicitly have souls, and taken this to be the case. Fragment 28 from the De Anima of Iamblichus goes pretty far in stating that the higher entities have souls, and also bodies of a kind, to which, however, their relationship is different from the way we humans relate to our bodies. The phrasing here seems to indicate that these higher bodies are probably subtle bodies, soul vehicles, in fact, ochemata. Now, here's the quote in Dylan and Finnamore's translation of section 28 from De Anima. The association of all souls with bodies is not the same. The all-soul, as Plotinus also believes, holds in itself the body that is appended to it. For it is not itself appended to this body or enveloped by it. As an aside, what we're talking about here, the body of the all-soul, is the cosmos as a whole. Back to our quote. Individual souls, on the other hand, attach themselves to bodies fall under the control of bodies and come to dwell in bodies that are already overcome by the nature of the universe. The souls of gods adapt their bodies, which imitate intellect, nous, to their own noetic essence. The souls of the other divine classes direct their vehicles according to their allotment in the cosmos. Furthermore, pure and perfect souls come to dwell in bodies in a pure manner, without passions and without being deprived of intellection, but opposite souls in an opposite manner. End of quote. So all of the greater kinds, even the noetic gods themselves, 
although it's a little bit ambiguous, have bodies or perhaps soul vehicles of some kind. The way he switches from body to vehicle would maybe imply that they have pneumatic vehicles, but not bodies in the sense of material bodies like we have down here. But it's pretty striking that Iamblichus is making seemingly all the gods into embodied beings in some sense. Nevertheless, all the greater kinds, including daimones, are impassable. Here, Iamblichus even argues against Porphyry in the De Mysteries. Remember Porphyry's evil daimones who can be sort of dragged down by their pneumatic vehicles um, and sort of who are in fact passable. They can suffer uh, effects from the material world. Well, for Iamblichus, no, even daimones are not located spatially, uh, even though they are sort of attributed to regions of the cosmos somehow, as we've just seen. And they are fundamentally impassable, unlike human souls. Now, as for the greater kinds, we'll say something about each of these superhuman sorts of critter in what follows. But before we do, we should point out the, the general exegetical framework we're looking at here. Iamblichus, like Plotinus and everyone after him in philosophical Platonism, is reading Plato's Parmenides as a handbook of how reality is organized. But unlike Plotinus, and as far as we know, unlike anyone else, instead of making soul the subject of the third so-called hypothesis of that dialogue, the one-many, he makes this third hypothesis refer to what he calls the greater kinds, ta kretonagene. These are the host of divine entities of a higher rank than human souls that we just referred to. Sometimes he seems to blur the lines between, say, souls and heroes and heroes and daimones, but generally speaking, human souls are actually the subject of the fourth and fifth hypotheses of the Parmenides. That would be the rational souls and then the irrational souls, those secondary souls which are woven onto rational souls, pros hufainomenai. So, although Iamblichus insists that all of these different kinds cannot be mixed, they have their own um, sort of societies, actually, he talks about them sometimes in a fairly sloppy way, so it's not entirely possible to uh, delineate them, at least with the fragmentary evidence we have. He also uses the term gods pretty sloppily. Um, he'll call all of these entities, the greater kinds, gods from time to time, but sometimes he'll reserve the term god specifically for the pure noetic gods. These are the gods, properly speaking. So, Iamblichus, reading Plato through the lens of a rich, inherited hierarchy of various divine types of being, drawn from late antique religions and astrology, and insisting, as Iamblichus does, that each type must remain in its own lane, so we're not in a world like Philo's, where souls, daimones, and angels are all the same genus of being, nor Plotinus's, where we can, by stripping away the lower aspects of ourselves, reveal the higher uh, aspects of being already present within us, so that when you pull the human soul away, you find noose uh, staring at you. Iamblichus ends up with this really detailed taxonomy of non-human intelligent entities, a proper divine hierarchy, all of which stand above humanity in terms of the purity of their essential being. Now, the details of Iamblichus' system are not entirely clear, and if you start to ask 
questions like how many different types of soul are there or what is the exact difference between human souls and heroes, you're not going to be able to answer them conclusively from the surviving evidence. But we can leave that problem to the theurgists to work out on their own. And as you'll see in this episode, there are practical ways to go about it. But the hierarchy we've laid out of gods, sensu strictu, followed by archangels, angels, daimones, heroes, archontes, and then human souls, stands with the proviso that it's even more complex than we have time to get into here. The key source here is book two of the De Mysterii, sections one through four. And it will be worth our while to go through the text here step by step a little bit, because it's absolutely fascinating. Porphyry has asked Anibo, remember, Porphyry's original letter to which Iamblichus is responding under the guise of the Egyptian priest Abamon was addressed to one Anibo, an Egyptian priest about whom we know nothing except that Porphyry addressed a letter to him asking a bunch of questions about the nature of the gods and rituals addressed to the gods. Porphyry has asked Anibo in this section how a daimon differs from a hero or a soul in terms of essence, power, or action. So Iamblichus Abamon responds that daimones and heroes are both produced near the tail end of the divine emanation process, but they do different things. Daimones have to do with the creation and management of the cosmos, while heroes deal specifically with souls and seemingly have a role in helping lead human souls out of the body and up into the higher realms of being. The daimonists extend deeper into the material cosmos than the heroes. According to a passage preserved in John Laidus, the sublunary daimones, the lowest type of daimon, probably, the ones we're sort of rubbing shoulders with on a daily basis, these are divided into three types. Those nearest to the earth are the punishing daimones, or the avenging daimones. Those of the aerial region are purificatory, and those nearest the moon have a salvific power. And according to John Lydus, those highest daimones are the same as the heroes. So this seems to be a case of the usual Yamblichian structure of overlapping triads, with the highest daimonic level corresponding with the lowest heroic level. And we can probably safely um, take that triadic overlapping or interlocking structure and apply it to all the greater kinds, all the way up to archangels and gods and so on. But um, that doesn't survive in Iamblichus. It's just a speculation. However, Iamblichus also agrees with the oracles and with Porphyry that there are evil daimones. And these would seem to be something totally different from the hierarchical triad cited by Lydus. Um, perhaps they are a separate genus or something like that. As O'Neill writes in a 2018 article, I wish to warn against speaking indiscriminately of demons in general in Yamblichus's thought without qualifying between good demons and evil ones. What is true of the former is not always true of the latter and vice versa, end of quote. So it may be that the punishing demons or avenging demons are the same thing as evil demons, but that doesn't seem to be the case. The evil daimones are specifically denied any role in the administration of the world, and the punishing uh, daimones obviously have a role in the um, administration of the world. They're there, in fact, to make us better when we err and to uh, balance the scales of cosmic justice. So there are evil daimonies, but it's difficult to figure out how they fit into Iamblichus's system. At any rate, in our passage, we note that 
Porphyry has suggested Daimones, Heroes, and Souls as three categories. We would of course expect Souls and Daimones from any Platonist writer, but where does Porphyry get these heroes from? Well, it's not entirely certain, but we can at least note the background because we haven't encountered these heroes before. First of all, forget the notion of a hero in the modern English sense of the term. A heros was, in traditional Greek cult, someone who, because of their great deeds during life, went on to receive cult after their death. Yes, these deeds may have been heroic in roughly the modern sense, like the the characters from the Iliad and the Odyssey are described as heroes, right? But they need not have been heroic in this sense. They need merely to have been very special or to have involved special divine intervention of some memorable sort. So this is a hero, someone basically who dies and then receives cult in Greek society. The traditional Roman religion, and this is very interesting, had a a very strong admixture of ancestor worship in it right into the classical period until Christianity finally sort of drove it out. The Romans had a kind of family cult wherein the head of the family, the patrafamilias, would regularly offer cult to the lares and penates of the household. These are these chthonic gods representing the sum total of the family's dead ancestors and sort of the spirits of the family. The Greeks, by way of contrast, didn't have this kind of worship, but they did accord cult to special members of the rather large class of dead people, namely to heroes. And the Greek countryside was dotted with various shrines to various heroes, from well-known ones like Heracles and Theseus to more obscure heroes like Trophonius, whose incubation oracle we discussed in episode 89 on Plutarch's eschatological myths. So these heroes were often, but not always, demigods, meaning one of their parents was a god. But for Iamblichus, or maybe for Porphyry before Iamblichus, we don't know how it's happened, but this traditional concept of a hero has been fully divinized. So heroes for Iamblichus were never human beings. They are a relatively low-level divinity concerned with the world of soul. Now, as far as I'm aware, this is the very first appropriation of the heros into philosophical divine hierarchy in this way. So maybe Porphyry got there first, maybe Iamblichus got there first, and Porphyry is responding to something he's heard Iamblichus say, or maybe someone else got there first. We don't know. Anyway, moving on. In section three of book two of De Mysterius, Iamblichus then insists on the strict differentiation between the higher genera, the greater kinds. Each greater kind has its own synodos, its own society. So the heroes all hang out together. The daimones all hang out together. The archangels all hang out together. We can definitely see here the beginnings of something that will become very familiar in Western esotericism, namely the angelic hierarchy, right? He has still, however, discussed only the daimon and the heros by name. But then later in section three, Iamblichus gets practical. And this is where students of Western esotericism are going to want to pay strict attention. Let's go ahead and read the translation of Clark, Dillon, and Hirschbell in extenso here. And in doing a bit of exegesis as we go along, we'll be able to flesh out the nature of these lower divinities in Iamblichus' system, as well as beginning to see how we humans might interact with them. Quote, But I now proceed to their manifestations. Now, manifestations 
in the text are epiphaneas in the Greek. That's epiphanies in English. This, as in time-honored Greek tradition, indicates the actual appearance of a god, usually to the sense of sight, but sometimes you get, you know, auditory epiphanies as well. We've seen a lot of epiphany in our discussion of alias Aristides. And as we go on, we're going to see this is exactly what Iamblichus means. He is going to describe what the different classes of deity look like in a very literal sense. Resuming our quote, in what way do they differ? For you ask, that's you, Porphyry, ask, what is the sign of the presence of a god, an angel, an archangel, a daimon, or of the archon, or soul? Now this seems to be another quote from Porphyry, so now Porphyry has expanded his taxonomy to include some new critters, gods, angels, archangels, and archontes. And the heroes have temporarily disappeared from the discussion. Now where do these angels and archangels come from? We haven't really seen them very much among polytheist Platonists yet. Aren't they sort of, well, Jewish or Christian? Yes, gentle listener, they are. Isn't that interesting? How did angels and archangels end up in this divine bestiary of Porphyry's? Well, as we recall, Porphyry was very interested in a lot of popular religion of his day, and in particular, quite learned about and attached to the Jews. So it should be no surprise to find angels and archangels, the messengers, the closest thing to a pantheon of gods you're allowed to have in a monotheistic religion like Hellenistic Judaism. It shouldn't surprise us to find them in Porphyry. But Yamlikus also has no objection to including them in the greater kinds. So while it's, I think, safe to speculate that Yamlikus is also down with the Jews and also probably thinks the Christians are stupid, while this is probably right, you don't actually need either of those positions to be digging angels in the third century. Angels have made their way out of their original Semitic context into late antique religions more broadly. We find them a lot in magical texts from Egypt, and they pop up here and there in other religious contexts as well in late antiquity. So angels have just entered into the general lexicon of possible types of divine beings upon which a Iamblichus or a Porphyry can draw. The same, incidentally, is true of the Archon, as we'll discuss in a moment. So back to our quote. So then, in brief, I declare that their manifestations, their epiphanies, are in accordance with their true natures, their potentialities and activities. For as they are, so they appear to those invoking them. Now, those invoking in this passage are tois epikalumenois, we are in religious territory here, but arguably we are in magical territory as well. Epikaleo, this verb, appears all the time in the Greek magical papyri as a normal word for summoning or invoking a god, and often invoking a god to appear in visible form in front of you. Quote, they display their activities in manifest forms in agreement with themselves and their own characteristic signs. But to distinguish them individually... The appearances of the gods are uniform, those of demons are varied, those of angels are simpler than those of demons, but inferior to those of gods. Now, as an aside, what gods are these? Is Iamblichus saying that the gods, properly understood, that is the pure noetic realities, can appear to mortal eyes, can actually be seen? Well, he's not saying yet what he means by gods, but spoiler alert, yes, gentle listener, 
This is seemingly the rather bizarre for a Platonist position of Iamblichus. And the reason these noetic, pure consciousness deities can appear to humans is because they, like all the higher kinds, seem to have bodies or at least pneumatic vehicles. And it's the pneumatic vehicles that appear to us, as we'll see shortly. Back to our quote. Those of archangels are closer to divine principles, but those of archons, if you take these to be rulers of the cosmos, comma, and now here's another aside, the term for rulers of the cosmos here is cosmocratores. This is a technical astrological term for the planets. It appears in Vettius Valens and elsewhere in the surviving astrological literature from antiquity. So what I think Iamblichus is saying here is porphyry, you use the term archontes, rulers, and by this I take it that you mean the technical astrological term cosmocrator, that is planet. So Iamblichus is, is narrowing the focus of uh, the term archon, which isn't perhaps uh, a priori uh, self-explanatory. Back to the quote. The archontes who administer the sublunary elements are varied, but structured in an orderly manner. And if they preside over matter, they are more varied and more imperfect than archangels. Okay, so we have archontes who preside over the sublunary elements and others which preside over matter. I'm not going to try to figure out the difference between these, but apparently they look different. So if you want to find out, go find out for yourself, gentle listener. Quote, and the appearances of souls come in all sorts of forms. Now, we might expect the varied appearance of souls from the varied types of souls. Because as we've seen, everything from a god to a planet to a human being has a soul. And judging from what we've seen so far, we might think that Iamblichus reckons you can actually even see an epiphany of the primary triad of soul, the highest term of which is the same thing as the noose being itself speculative. He never says that, but one wonders. At any rate, souls can appear to you in all sorts of forms. Quote, and again, those of gods shine benignly in appearance, while those of archangels are solemn, though at the same time gentle, milder than those of angels, and those of daimones are frightening. And as for those of heroes, even if they have been omitted in your inquiry, let there be an answer for truth's sake, because they are indeed gentler than the daimonic. Those of archons are striking if they are in authority over the cosmos and actually harmful and painful to the viewers if they are involved with matter. So these archontes suddenly seem awfully well Gnostic in the sense that they're depicted as of two kinds, cosmic and hylic, or, you know, cosmic and dealing with matter. And the lower hylic ones are harmful and painful to view that is, they are some kind of evil entity, seemingly. So, are we to posit some knowledge of Gnostic texts on Iamblichus's part here? It's not impossible. Uh, it's, it's probably quite likely, but definitely not necessary. What I think we're looking at here is a shared late antique thought world in which the term archon, obviously when read as a term of divine taxonomy, not read just to mean ruler or governor, right? The term archon indicates a low-level evil, for want of a better word, entity. Uh, we see this already in St. Paul from the first century, and we might think that this idea has Christian origins, but we might also want to argue that it developed in a complex way from lots of strands of culture. At any rate, 
Whoever the Heilic Archontes of Iamblichus are, they are not nice beings. And viewing them will seemingly mess you up, or at least scare you shitless. So while I'm thus pretty confident in equating the higher cosmocratic archons with the planets, the astrological cosmocratores, for these lower ones, I don't really know what they might be. It's an open question, and I welcome uh, your speculations or uh, learned corrections. Quote, The appearances of souls are rather like the heroic, except that they are inferior to them. Once again, these appearances of the gods are wholly unchanging in regard to size, shape, formation, and all things connected with them. While those of archangels, though very close to those of the gods, fall short of full identity with them. And those of angels are inferior in turn to these, but unchanging. And those of daimones appear to the view at different times in different forms, the same forms appearing great and small. And further, those of such archons as are administrative and unchanging, but the appearance of archons immersed in matter change into many forms. Those of heroes resemble daimones, and those of souls are inferior in no small degree to the changeability of daimones. Further still, order and tranquility are characteristic of the gods, while in the case of archangels, the order and tranquility take on an active quality. But with the angels, orderly arrangement and calmness are no longer exempt from motion. Tumult and disorder, however, accompany the visions of daimones, while those of archons are in keeping with the two views of them which we've already mentioned. Tumultuous when born along immersed in matter, but when ruling, they abide steadfastly in themselves. Those of heroes are impelled on in motion and are not exempt from change. Those of souls, lastly, resemble somewhat the appearance of heroes, but are nevertheless inferior even to them. Besides these characteristics, divine appearances flash forth a beauty almost irresistible, seizing those beholding it with wonder, providing a wondrous cheerfulness, manifesting itself with ineffable symmetry, and transcending in calmliness all other forms. End of quote. Okay, what is ineffable symmetry? Arreto symmetria. These divine visions are somehow beyond description in their beauty, but they are symmetrical. Uh, I think the meaning here must be that they appear as spherical. The rotating sphere is for Iamblichus, the motion and shape proper to nous. And this is why soul vehicles are spherical, in that they are imitations of this higher sphericity. So what the heck is Iamblichus seeing when he sees one of these noetic gods uh, with its ineffable symmetry? Um, we'll speculate a bit in a moment. Now, the quote goes on a little bit more telling us about the beauties of these gods as they appear to you, but we'll let the gentle listener go and check that out for themselves. Uh, but now I hear someone say, this is all incredibly interesting, but what I want to know is what is Iamblichus talking about with all this seeing gods business? You've already covered the rituals of apparition found in certain Greek magical papyri and the possibility that some of the rituals adumbrated in the Chaldean oracle fragments involved cultivating epiphanies of Hecate, possibly through staring into a fire? Is that what Iamblichus is talking about here? And is this the theurgy we've been hearing so much about, but you never seem to actually get to what it is for Iamblichus? Well, gentle listener, these are good questions. Uh, to take the second first, this may well be part of theurgy. Theurgy for Iamblichus is basically any practice devoted to invoking the gods. So invoking them to visible appearance would probably count as theurgy. But for the first part of the question, 
what the hell is Yamplikas talking about, we are actually in a decent position to speculate responsibly. In the De Mysteries, Yamblikus refers to a practice called photos agoge or photagogia, the leading up of light, a practice of shining light on water in vessels to evoke the appearances of gods, goddesses, or other divinities, a kind of scrying, in other words, and a practice with strong parallels from the Greek magical papyri and many, many other sources down to the present day. So it's a safe bet, I think, that either this practice or something like it is the means by which one sees these apparitions of gods and greater kinds. This is certainly one way in which Iamblichus thinks you can see visions of gods. Whether or not it's the way that he's talking about in this long description of the different appearances of gods, that's another story. But I think it's at least surely safe to say that this description of this practice of photagogia gives us some insight into the kind of practice we're talking about here. He's not just saying visions appear to you. He's saying you have to do this and then the visions appear and this is what they will look like. Now, what we might think is going on in ritual practices like this is quite different from how Yamblikos sees it. For him, the appearances of these gods are autophanes, self-revelatory. It's not that we are sort of making ourselves or even tricking ourselves into seeing the gods. It's that the gods want to reveal themselves to us. They have a a nature that allows them or makes them be revealed to us. But immaterial beings cannot be apprehended with material senses, surely. You're right, gentle listener. The gods are revealing themselves via their pneumatic vehicles. Just as in Porphyry, it is the pneuma of an immaterial entity which can form a phasma, an apparition, which you will recall is how Porphyry explained ghosts in On the Cave of the Nymphs. For Iamblichus, this goes explicitly for heroes and daimones. He speaks of the daimonia de caeta heroica autoptica pneumata, the daimonic and heroic self-visible pneumas. And we can probably safely say this for all the higher beings. So that is what we might call the intermediate divine realm the truly divine realm proper is, of course, the noetic world. And to get there, you need to go through the noeric realm, that curious place first adumbrated in the Chaldean oracles, as we discussed last time. But now let's talk very briefly about the realm of soul. Now, this episode is already running on a bit, but surely no one will complain about our digression into practical visionary workings. Nevertheless, we're going to try to be brief Keen listeners who've been paying attention to our coverage of earlier Platonists and our discussion of the subtle body in Platonism should have no problem following this rather abbreviated set of statements about the Yamblikin realm of soul and individual human souls. Ontologically, we have, unsurprisingly, a triad of hypostatic soul. There is the pure or unparticipated soul, a methectos psyche, which serves as the monad of the psychic realm, and of course overlaps with the noetic realm, or perhaps the noeric realm. And participated soul, methektos psyche, which is in a way the sum total of individual souls. So these would be the highest and lowest terms of the triad. What would be its middle term? Iamblichus doesn't actually tell us as far as I'm aware, but it's going to be something like participated stroke unparticipated soul, at a guess. At any rate, all the lesser souls 
And there are more than just human souls, as we've seen. All of them are somehow derived ontologically from the participated soul. As we know, the human soul for Yamlukus is always a human soul. It cannot transform into higher beings, nor can it escape from the cycle of necessity, which means it must reincarnate again and again. Souls must remain not only souls, but they must remain their own kind, their own genus of soul. A bunch of other kinds of soul are also derived from the primary triad, other, other than the human soul, but they all have their own essence and they can, this can never change. Now, Iamblichus explicitly rejects the Plotinian doctrine of the undescended self, which he also attributes to Porphyry and Emilius. In his uh, commentary on the Timaeus 43c to d, cited by Proclus, he says, quote, But if when the best part of us is perfect, then the whole of us is blessed, eudaimon, what would prevent us all, the whole human race, from being blessed at this moment, if the highest part of us is always enjoying noesis, and always turned toward the gods? If the noose is the highest part, that has nothing to do with soul. If it is part of the soul, then the rest of the soul must also be happy. That's Dylan's translation slightly altered. So this descended nature of the soul is the most fundamental reason why theurgy is needed for philosophic ascent. We can't go up to the gods because we are not noetic ourselves. We are souls. So we need to draw them down here so that they can, in effect, carry us back up with them. Yamblichian man is thus far more earthbound in a certain sense than any of the Platonists we've been looking at so far in the podcast would maintain. Even if between lives he will indeed spend his time orbiting with his planet, or even, assuming he's done the work of philosophic and theurgic purification, he'll be hobnobbing with the noetic gods. At the end of the day, it's going to be back down to earth and to another human body. There is seemingly no escape from being a human being with a human soul for Iamblichus. Our souls are pretty much at the bottom of the chain of intelligences, except for animals, which do not have rational souls, and which for Iamblichus are, again, a totally different genus of being. So, of course, the idea of reincarnation into animal bodies is rejected by Iamblichus. And this is an interesting case where Iamblichus's Platonist fundamentalism, his positing of immutable types of beings which cannot transform into each other, as Plato lays it out, according to Iamblichus's reading, this fundamentalism means he actually has to go against Plato, because Plato explicitly states on numerous occasions that animal reincarnations are a fact. So here Plato is, of course, speaking metaphorically, according to Iamblichus. Now, Yamblichian man, of course, has a soul vehicle and an allotted daimon. And his take on these two entities is sort of a new twist compared to what we've seen so far in our two episodes on the subtle body in antiquity, though taking account of the same factors, astral, eschatological, and physical, addressed by the theories of earlier Platonists. The ohima, the vehicle, the pneuma upon which our soul rides, is not for Yamblichus formed from astral or other accretions, it is actually made by the gods themselves. In fact, it's roughly equal to the soul itself in dignity, and it is immortal. The daimon, on the other hand, is formed from the astral conjunctions present when the soul descends. So the daimon is sort of our horoscope in living form. Iamblichus's personal daimon seems to be a lot like Porphyry's soul vehicle, in fact. It's astrally conditioned. Now, what about matter and fate, the things from which we must escape for our philosophic salvation? Well, fate is, uh, perhaps predictably, emphatically astral 
for Iamblichus. In fragment 4 of the letter to Macedonius, this is made very clear. Now, fate is, for Iamblichus, contained within providence, pronoia, so it's not an outright evil in any way. It's basically a lower materialized image of pronoia, of providence, taking place at the level of change and particulars. But what is matter? Well, Iamblichus's doctrine of matter is one of the weirder aspects of his philosophy from the perspective of Platonism. Again, totally at variance with Plotinus, Iamblichus states that matter is created by God, and so it has the divine nature within it. Indeed, the nature of the one itself is in some way present in matter, which is like the trace of the absolute highest reality within the absolute lowest reality. How this plays out for his theory of philosophic ascent through theurgic practice is what we will be discussing in detail when we get to Iamblichan theurgy. But for now, we hope that the crude map of Iamblichus's universe that we've laid out in the previous episode and this episode is helpful. This is the terrain upon which philosophy and theurgy will be played out, right? Our many episodes on theurgy will hopefully get into the juicy specifics of the kind of practices that are being talked about and much more. But before that, we'd like to discuss the esoteric in Iamblichus, the specific employment of the speech acts and tropes of hiding and revealing that we find in this great esotericist. So join us next time for that. And if you can't stay esoteric for an episode on the esoteric in Iamblichus, well, you probably weren't esoteric to begin with, and it's time to hang up your boots.